There are female supremacist models for intercourse that try to make us the masters of this language that we speak that is not ours. They evade some fundamental questions about the act itself and acknowledge others. They have in common a glorious ambition to see women self-determining, vigorous and free lovers who are never demeaned or diminished by force or subordination, not in society, not in sex. The great advocate of the female first model of intercourse in the 19th century was Victoria Woodhull. She understood that rape was slavery, not less than slavery in its insult to human integrity and human dignity. She acknowledged some of the fundamental questions of female freedom presented by intercourse and her imperious insistence that women had a natural right, a right that inherited in the nature of intercourse itself, to be entirely self-determining, the controlling and dominating partner, the one whose desire determined the event, the one who both initiates and is the final authority on what the sex is and will be. Her thinking was not mean-spirited, some silly role reversal to make a moral point, nor was it a taste for tyranny hidden in what pretended to be a sexual ethic. She simply understood that women are unspeakably vulnerable in intercourse because of the nature of the act, entry, penetration, occupation, and she understood that in a society of male power, women were unspeakably exploited in intercourse. Society, men, had to agree to let the woman be the mind, the heart, the lover, the free spirit, the physical vitality behind the act. The commonplace abuse of forced entry, the devastating consequences of being powerless and occupied, suggested that the only condition under which women could experience sexual freedom and intercourse, real choice, real freedom, real happiness, real pleasure, was in having real and absolute control in each and every act of intercourse, which would be, each and every time, chosen by the woman. She would have the incontrovertible authority to make intercourse possible. To woman, by nature, belongs the right of sexual determination. When the instinct is aroused in her, then and then only should commerce follow. When woman rises from sexual slavery to sexual freedom, into the ownership and control of her sexual organs, and man is obliged to respect this freedom, then will this instinct become pure and holy. Then will woman be raised from the iniquity and morbidness of which she now wallows for existence, and the intensity and glory of her creative functions to be increased a hundredfold. The consent standard is revealed as a pallid, weak, stupid, second class, by contrast with Woodhull's standard, that the woman should have authority and control over the act. The sexual humiliation of women through male ownership was understood by Woodhull to be a concrete reality, not a metaphor, not a hyperbole. The man owned the woman's sexual organs. She had to own her sexual organs for intercourse to mean freedom for her. This is more concrete and more meaningful than a more contemporary vocabulary of owning one's own desire. Woodhull wanted the woman's desire to be the desire of significance, but she understood that ownership of the body was not an abstraction. It was concrete and came first. The iniquity and morbidness of intercourse under male dominance would end if women could exercise a materially real self-determination in sex. The woman having material control of her own sex organs and of each and every act of intercourse would not lead to a reverse dominance, the man subject to the woman. Because of the nature of the act and the nature of the sex organs involved in the act, this is the sense in which Woodhull tried to face the fundamental questions raised by intercourse as an act with consequences, some perhaps intrinsic. 
The woman could not forcibly penetrate the man. The woman could not take him over as he took her over and occupy his body physically inside. His dominance over her expressed in the physical reality of intercourse had no real analog in desire she might express for him in intercourse. She simply could not do to him what he could do to her. Warhol's view was materialist, not psychological. She was the first publisher of the Communist Manifesto in the United States and the first woman stockbroker on Wall Street. She saw sex the way she saw money and power, in terms of concrete, physical reality. Male notions of female power based on psychology or, or ideas would not have addressed for her the real issues of physical dominance and power and intercourse. The woman would not force or rape or physically own the man because she could not. Thus, giving the woman power over intercourse was giving her the power to be equal. Woodhull's vision was, in fact, deeply humane, oriented towards sexual pleasure and freedom. For women, she thought and proclaimed, at great cost to herself. Freedom must be literal, physical, concrete self-determination beginning with absolute control of the sexual organs. This was a natural right that had been perverted by male dominance, and because of its perversion, sex was for women morbid and degrading. The only freedom imaginable in this act of intercourse was freedom based on an irrevocable and unbreachable female will given play in a body honestly her own. This was an eloquent answer to reading the meaning of intercourse the other way. By its nature, intercourse mandated that the woman must be lesser in power and in privacy. Instead, said Woodhull, the woman must be king. Her humanity required sexual sovereignty. Male-dominated gender hierarchy, however, seems immune to reform by reasoned or visionary argument or by changes in sexual styles, either personal or social. This may be because intercourse itself is immune to reform. In it, female is bottom, stigmatized. Intercourse remains a means or the means of physiologically making a woman inferior, communicating to her cell by cell her own inferior status, impressing it on her, burning it into her by shoving it into her over and over, pushing and thrusting until she gives up and gives in, which is called surrender in the male lexicon. In the experience of intercourse, she loses the capacity for integrity because her body, the basis of privacy and freedom in the material world for all human beings, is entered and occupied. The boundaries of her physical body are, neutrally speaking, violated. What is taken from her in that act is not recoverable, and she spends her life wanting, after all, to have something. Pretending that pleasure is in being reduced through intercourse to insignificance, she will not have an orgasm, maybe because she has human pride and she resents captivity, but also she will not or cannot rebel, not enough for it to matter, to end male dominance over her. She learns to eroticize powerlessness and self-annihilation. The very boundaries of her own body become meaningless to her, and even worse, useless to her. The transgression of those boundaries comes to signify a sexually charged degradation into which she throws herself, having been told, convinced, that identity, for a female, is there, somewhere, beyond privacy and self-respect. It is not that there is no way out if, for instance, one were to establish or believe that intercourse itself determines women's lower status. New reproductive technologies have changed and will continue to change the nature of the world. Intercourse is not necessary to existence anymore. Existence does not depend on female compliance, nor on the violation of female boundaries, nor on the lesser female privacy, nor on the physical occupation of the female body. 
but the hatred of women is a source of sexual pleasure for men in its own right. Intercourse appears to be the expression of that contempt in pure form, in the form of a sexed hierarchy. It requires no passion or heart because it is power without invention articulating the arrogance of those who do the fucking. Intercourse is the pure, sterile, formal expression of men's contempt for women, but that contempt can turn gothic and express itself in many sexual and sadistic practices that is true intercourse, per se. Any violation of a woman's body can become sex for men. This is the essential truth of pornography. So freedom from intercourse, or a social structure that reflects the low value of intercourse in women's sexual pleasure, or intercourse becoming one sex act among many entered into by hypothetical equals as part of other, deeper, longer, perhaps more sensual lovemaking, or an end to women's inferior status because we need not be forced to reproduce, forced fucking frequently justified by some implicit biological necessity to reproduce. None of these are likely social developments because there is a hatred of women, unexplained, undiagnosed, mostly unacknowledged, that pervades sexual practice and sexual passion. Reproductive technologies are strengthening male dominance, invigorating it by providing new ways of policing women's reproductive capacities, bringing them under stricter male scrutiny and control. And the experimental development of these technologies has been sadistic, using human women as if they were sexual laboratory animals, rats, mice, rabbits, cats, with kinky uteri. For increasing numbers of men, bondage and torture of the female genitals that were entered into and occupied in the good old days may supplant intercourse as a sexual practice. The passion for hurting women is a sexual passion, and sexual hatred of women can be expressed without intercourse. There has always been a peculiar irrationality to all of the biological arguments that supposedly predetermine the inferior social status of women. Bulls mount cows and baboons do whatever, but human females do not have estrus or go into heat. The logical inference is that is not that we are always available for mounting, but rather that we are never, strictly speaking, available. Nor do animals have cultures, nor do they determine in so many things what they will do and how they will do them and what the meaning of their own behavior is. They do not decide what their lives will be. Only humans face the often complicated reality of having potential and having to make choices based on having potential. We are not driven by instinct, at least not much. We have possibilities and we make meanings up as we go along. The meanings we create or learn do not exist only in our heads, in ineffable ideas. Our meanings also exist in our bodies. What we are, what we do, what we physically feel, what we physically know. And there is no personal psychology that is separate from what the body has learned about life. Yet when we look at the human condition, including the condition of women, we act as if we are driven by biology or some metaphysically absolute dogma. We refuse to recognize our possibilities because we refuse to honor the pot potential humans have, including human women, to make choices. Men too make choices. When will they choose not to despise us? Being female in this world is having been robbed of the potential for human choice by men who love to hate us. One does not make choices in freedom. Instead, one conforms in body type and behavior and values to become an object of male sexual desire, which requires an abandonment of a wide-ranging capacity for choice. Objectification may well be the most singly destructive aspect of gender hierarchy, especially as it exists in relation to intercourse. 
The surrender occurs before the act that is supposed to accomplish the surrender takes place. She has given in. Why conquer her? The body is violated before the act occurs that is commonly taken to be violation. The privacy of the person is lessened before the privacy of the woman is invaded. She has remade herself so as to prepare the way for the invasion of privacy that her preparation makes possible. The significance of the human ceases to exist as the value of the object increases. An expansive ornament, for instance, she is incapable of human freedom. Taking it, knowing it, wanting it, being it. Being an object, living in the realm of male objectification, is abject submission, an abdication of the freedom and integrity of the body, its privacy, its uniqueness, its worth in and of itself because it is the human body of a human being. Can intercourse exist without objectification? Would intercourse be a different phenomenon if it could, if it did? Would it be shorter or longer, happier or sadder, more complex, richer, denser, with a Baroque beauty or simpler with an austere beauty, or bang, bang, bang? Would intercourse without objectification, if it could exist, be compatible with women's equality, even an expression of it? Or would it still be stubbornly antagonistic to it? Would intercourse cause orgasm in women if women were not objects for men before and during intercourse? Can intercourse exist without objectification and can objectification exist without female complicity in maintaining it as a perceived reality and a material reality too? Can objectification exist without the woman herself turning herself into an object, becoming through effort and art a thing, less than human, so that he can be more than human, hard, sovereign, king? Can intercourse exist without the woman herself turning herself into a thing, which she must do because men cannot fuck equals and men must fuck, because one price of dominance is that one is impotent in the face of equality? To become the object, she takes herself and transforms herself into a thing. All freedoms are diminished and she is caged, even in the cage docile, sometimes physically maimed. Movement is limited. She physically becomes the thing he wants to fuck. It is especially in the acceptance of object status that her humanity is hurt. It is a metaphysical acceptance of lower status in sex and in society, an implicit acceptance of less freedom, less privacy, less integrity. In becoming an object so that he can objectify her so that he can fuck her, she begins a political collaboration with his dominance, and then when he enters her, he confirms for himself and for her what she is, that she is something, not someone, certainly not someone equal. There is the initial complicity, the acts of self-mutilation, self-diminishing, self-reconstruction until there is no self, only the diminished, mutilated reconstruction. It is all superficial and unimportant except what it costs the human in her to do it, except for the fact that it is submissive, conforming, giving up an individuality that would withstand object status or defy it. Something happens inside. A human forgets freedom, a human learns obedience, a human, this time a woman, learns how to goose-step the female way. Wilhelm Reich, that most optimistic of sexual liberationists, the only male one to abhor rape really, thought that a girl needed not only a free genital sexuality, but also an undisturbed room, proper contraceptives, a friend who is capable of love, that is, not a national socialist. All remain hard for women to attain, but especially the lover who is not a national socialist. So the act goes beyond complicity to collaboration, but collaboration requires a preparing of the ground 
an undermining of values and vision and dignity, a sense of alienation from the worth of other human beings. And this alienation is fundamental to females who are objectified because they do not experience themselves as human beings of worth except for their value on the market as objects. Knowing one's own human value is fundamental to being able to respect others. Females are remade into objects, not human in any sense related to freedom or justice. And so what can females recognize in other females that is a human bond towards freedom? Is there anything in us to love if we do not love each other as the objects we have become? Who can love someone who is less than human unless love itself is domination per se? alienation from human freedom is deep and destructive it destroys whatever it is in us as humans that is creative that causes us to want and to find meaning in experiences even hard experiences it destroys in us that which wants freedom whatever the hardship of attaining it in women these great human capacities and dimensions are destroyed or mutilated and so we find ourselves bewildered who or what are these so-called persons in human form, but even that not quite, not exactly, who cannot remember or manifest the physical reality of freedom, who do not seem to want or to value the individual experience of freedom. Being an object for man means being alienated from other women, those like her in status, in inferiority, in sexual function. Collaboration by women with men to keep women civilly and sexually inferior has been one of the hallmarks of female subordination. We are ashamed when Frude notices it, but it is true. The collaboration, fully manifested when a woman values her lover, the National Socialist, above any woman, any one of her own kind or class or status, may have simple beginnings. The first act of complicity that destroys self-respect, the capacity for self-determination and freedom, readying the body for the fuck instead of for freedom. The men have an answer. Intercourse is freedom. Maybe it is second-class freedom for second-class humans. What does it mean to be the person who needs to have this done to her, who needs to be needed as an object, who needs to be entered, who needs to be occupied, who needs to be wanted more than she needs integrity or freedom or equality? If objectification is necessary for intercourse to be possible, what does that mean for the person who needs to be fucked so that she can experience herself as female and who needs to be an object so that she can, so that she can be fucked? The brilliance of objectification as a strategy of dominance is that it gets the woman to take the initiative in her own degradation. Having less freedom is degrading. The woman herself takes one kind of responsibility absolutely and thus commits herself to her own continuing inferiority. She polices her own body, she internalizes the demands of the dominant class and, in order to be fucked, she constructs her life around meeting those demands. It is the best system of colonization on earth. She takes on the burden, the responsibility of her own submission, her own objectification. In some systems in which turning the female into an object for sex requires actual terrorism and maiming, for instance, foot binding or removing the clitoris, the mother does it, having had it done to her by her mother. What men need done to women so that men can have intercourse with women is done to women so that men will have intercourse, no matter what the human cost. And it is a gross indignity to suggest that when her collaboration is complete, unself-conscious because there is no self and no consciousness left, she is free to have freedom and intercourse. When those who dominate you get to take the initiative in your own human destruction, you have lost more than any oppressed people yet has ever gotten back. Whatever intercourse it is, it is not freedom. 
and if it cannot exist without objectification, it never will be. Instead, occupied women will be collaborators, more base in their collaboration than other collaborators have ever been, experiencing pleasure in their own inferiority, calling intercourse freedom. It is a tragedy beyond the power of language to convey when what has been imposed on women by force becomes a standard of freedom for women, and all the women say it is so. If intercourse can be an expression of sexual equality, it will have to survive, on its own merits, as it were, having a potential for human expression not yet recognized or realized. The destruction of male power over women and rape and prostitution will have to be seen as the institutions that the most impede any experience of intercourse as freedom, chosen by full human beings with full human freedom. Rape and prostitution negate self-determination and choice for women, and anyone who wants intercourse to be freedom and to mean freedom has better find a way to get rid of them. Maybe life is tragic and the God who does not exist made women inferior so that men could fuck us. Or maybe we can only know this much for certain, that when intercourse exists and is experienced under conditions of force, fear, or inequality, it destroys in women the will to political freedom. It destroys the love of freedom of itself. We become female, occupied, collaborators against each other, especially against those among us who resist male dominance, the lone, crazy resistors, the organized resistance. The pleasure of submission does not and cannot change the fact, the cost, the indignity of inferiority.